Well, please take your Bibles and find your way to Philippians chapter 2 this morning. So far in our study, Philippians is in the New Testament. If a Bible is um, intimidating for you, there is a Bible there in the seat back in front of you. Go ahead and grab one. In the front of that Bible, you'll find a table of contents. And you'll notice the table of contents is broken up into Old Testament and New Testament. We are in the New Testament in the book of Philippians, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Philippi. And we've seen some rich truth together, haven't we? And it's been truth that's been challenging as well. I mean, right? We've been exhorted by Paul's example of having his whole life, he viewed his entire life as a mission of making Christ known, of advancing the gospel. I mean, Paul is the one that said, for me to live as Christ, to die is gain. What a radical statement to say, right? Paul then, of course, challenged his readers uh, to live a life worthy of the gospel at the end of chapter 1, which really is kind of what the rest of the letter then is unfolding, is unpacking, is what does it look like for Christians in a pagan world to live worthy of the gospel? He unpacks that by telling us that really living worthy of the gospel means that we strive side by side for the advance of the gospel. We are people who will be of one accord and of one mind, chapter 2. People who are not living according to our selfish ambition or conceit, but we are giving ourselves for the interests of others and serving Christ and trying to make his name known. And of course, verses like this in this letter give us a little bit of an insight into some of the cause and the reason why Paul wrote this letter. I don't know if you ever think of churches in the, in the New Testament as kind of being like, you know, perfect churches. You know, like, man, if you could just be a member back in the church in Philippi, that would have been awesome, right? I mean, Jesus hasn't been gone real long. You have the Apostle Paul around writing letters and sounds kind of neat, right? Well, it wasn't all roses and lilies, okay? They lived through hard times, through opposition, through, through challenges. And, of course, the church in Philippi needed to hear the instruction that Paul was giving, because there was unrest and division and disunity present in the church. That's why he's writing to them, do all things with unity. Stop giving way to selfish ambition. Strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. And of course, in chapter 4, uh, he calls out two people who actually, he says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This church needed the gospel to change and recover and restore them in their joyful service together. And then, of course, in chapter 2, Paul gives them the greatest motivation they could ever look for to live out a life worthy of the gospel. And that is found in that hymn, this kind of poem about describing Christ in chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, where he points their attention to the perfect example, the riches of what they have in Jesus himself being the trendsetter. Like John said when we started, the trendsetter, the author and finisher of our faith, how Christ himself models for us what it looks like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And he tells them and he assures them that they can live this way. They have this mind. This mind of Christ has been given to them. And the result is, if they live this way, following the example of Christ, they will not be people who are grumbling and disputing. They'll be people who live with a shining witness in a twisted and pagan society. That's kind of just a summary of what we've looked at so far. A lot of good truth, right? Well, here's the danger. The danger is we can go through a series of sermons like this and come away with our heads full of understanding of Bible doctrine, but sadly still let our lives be largely unaffected in how we live. That is one of the dangers that we face in our, uh, in our modern age where we have such ready access to God's word that we can go through 
sermon after sermon, we can read God's word, we can have commentaries and studies and kind of pride ourselves in the knowledge that we have of God. But do we actually ask ourselves, what would it look like to live this truth out, to embrace these truths, not as a theory out there, that's something we assent to kind of abstractly, but something we embrace internally so that our lives are renovated by the truth of Christ crucified, risen, and coming again. So this passage for us today is, uh, might seem a bit of a kind of odd. I mean, when Melody read it, it's kind of like what we have here is like a summary of some travel plans that Paul has for some ministry partners. So what? I mean, really, think about it. Why would we spend time on a Sunday morning looking at this? I mean, after all, um, these guys aren't traveling to see us. These fellows that he's talking about, in fact, right? I mean, Trish, try to say the name there in verse 25. Anybody want to give a stab at it? Should I have us all say it out loud? Epaphroditus. I mean, that's a mouthful, right? I mean, none of us are going to meet this guy. Timothy and Epaphroditus have been long dead. So what that they were planning to come and Paul had these plans and this is what they were going to do. None of us have met this people. Why bother with this at all? Fair questions. When I believe what we have here in verses 19 through 30 are inspiring examples of what it looks like practically to live a life worthy of the gospel. To live a life that is not giving yourself to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Living a life that is focused upon, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I mean, he given us the example of Jesus in chapter 2, but, I mean, honestly, does a part of you say, okay, man, that's kind of like, all right, I mean, Jesus could do that because he's Jesus. But what hope do we have, right? I mean, we're just people. Well, I think what Paul is doing here, he's giving two examples of what it looks like, people that they know, the church knew. I mean, these were guys that they had a relationship with. They knew them firsthand. It wasn't just an abstract out there. Jesus lived this way, so can you. But it was, here's some real-life examples of people that you know that have lived and served and given themselves to you in these ways to inspire and encourage them to obey the demands and the claims of the gospel upon their life. So think of it this way. You ever watch one of those fitness programs? You know, the person up there is saying, we're going to make you fit and they're saying, okay, here we go. And they, I'm not going to do emotions because I look like an idiot. But you know what I'm saying, right? They, they, you, know, you can follow Frank if you really want to get into it. You can follow you know, Sally if you want to kind of hold back a little bit. Or you follow the guy in the middle just to kind of you know, follow these exercises, whether it's strength or you know, high-intensity training, you understand? And you're, you're following what they're doing. But what we have here in Timothy and Epaphroditus are some models, some things for us to follow, to encourage. Them. What does it actually look like? in real life, to live in a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, I want to warn us here, because this sermon is going to be really heavy on application. And I'm going to kind of swing for the fences in that application against what I perceive as threats um, in our modern age, in our culture, in our American dream, that are diseases infecting us as American Christians. So I just want you to be aware of that. Uh, this is going to be heavy on application. It's intended to make us squirm, okay? Now, I want to also say that, these, that this sermon is, is born out of a heart of this passage hitting me in the nose, okay, as I was preparing. And so none of this is shared from a sense of condemnation or accusation. Um, I'm going to be making some applications in some spheres that I see that are needed in our society at large, that does not mean that if, 
If you happen to have a similarity there, that that means I'm condemning you, I'm not. Okay? I just want to preface that as we go into this. This text is really heavy on application because it's examining and looking at a model. So we'll look at it in two sections. Very simply, the first section looking at the example offered by Timothy and the second section, the example offered by Epaphroditus. So in this first section, Paul is essentially summarizing that he hopes to send Timothy to uh, give them a report and then to come back and he hopes to be cheered up by the report that he would hear of Timothy um, giving him an update on how life is going in the church in Philippi. Now, we might think that's kind of benign, right? Like He's going to go back. Timothy's going to give them a report on how Paul's doing. Timothy's going to see how the church is doing, come back and give Paul a report. But it was kind of like, you know, um, Paul was wanting to get a checkup on the church. I mean, he's written them a letter. You're going to read that letter. There's expectations in this letter for them to obey the gospel. And Paul wants to hear, how are they doing? Which is why earlier he talks about, I want you to obey not only in my presence, right? not only when he's there, when the apostolic authority is there and everybody, everybody's like, oh, you know, Paul's here. We're going we're gonna, to you know, live according to the gospel now. Now we're living worthy of the gospel. Paul's in prison. Eh, we can live as we want. He wants to hear their report. So Timothy is uh, an interesting character in our Bible. He uh, was born in a home that was not Christian. He did have a Christian mother and I believe a Christian grandmother, but his father was an unbelieving Greek. And it appears that he came to faith as a result of Paul's evangelistic efforts on one of his missionary journeys. Paul describes him as a child in his faith, a son with him. There's this close relationship that they shared in that sense. And Timothy was involved with Paul heavily in his ministry efforts in various churches around the Greco-Roman world. He was involved with the efforts in Thessalonica, he is also involved with the preaching work in Corinth, which, by the way, would have been incredibly intimidating. Corinth was a, was a mess, right? I mean, they were attacking Paul. They were accusing Paul. Timothy was there trying to hold down the fort and, and, uh, and help them with God's word. Timothy was also present in the uh, uh, ministry in Ephesus also. And by the way, Timothy was evidently of a timid disposition. He was a youth, at least for a period of time, right? We all grow out of youth, don't we? Um, but he had a timid disposition because Paul instructs the church at what point to make sure that they put Timothy at ease, which obviously meant that Paul assumed that Timothy was kind of on edge as he went into that particular area of ministry. So what we have then is this kind of summary of what was going on with Timothy, his plans for him to travel, give a report, and come back. So what truth do we have in here for us? Well, look at verse 19. Paul is hoping that the news he would receive from Timothy would cheer Paul up. Paul wanted to send Timothy so he could get a report back and be cheered up by the news that he would hear. And so based on that, what we have in this letter is that Paul needed Christian community to cheer him up. He needed to hear the report of other Christians obeying Jesus, following Christ, living a life that is advancing the gospel to cheer him up. Of course, Paul would understand, would be cheered up by by hearing of evidence that they have, that they have embraced his instruction in, his, in, in, the, in the letter. And so just as Paul found joy in Christian community, so should we. And so I just want to put it out here again, heavy on application. What relationship does Christian community have in your life in regards to your spiritual flourishing and formation? Or do you largely live like an independent, individual, maverick Christian that on Sundays gathers with other Christians for an hour or two, and then you ricochet off and live largely an individual, isolated life as a Christian. 
That is foreign to the New Testament ideals. The Apostle Paul is in prison and he is longing to be cheered up. In fact, there's a reason he doesn't let Timothy go because he says, I want to keep him around while I figure out what's going to happen to me. He needed the companionship of Timothy with him. That is ordinary New Testament Christianity. So I'd just like to encourage us as a church to consider our relationship, our disposition towards the riches that God offers in Christian community, but also understand this. We have to create that. It's been kind of teased in books and by other uh, authors that everybody says they want community until you offer it to them. (laughs) And then we run because we have to give things up. We have to adjust our schedules. We have to say no to all these other things. We have to, in order to say yes to the riches of what God gives us in Christian community. So, by the way, this could be simply as joining a home group. Or it could simply be understanding that your home really should be an outpost of Christian hospitality to do good to the people that are sitting right here around you. Maybe your joy in the Lord is low because your experience and commitment to two Christian communities is low. Notice how Paul describes Timothy in verse 20. He says that he is somebody who is genuinely concerned for your welfare. This sets Timothy apart. In contrast, look at verse 21. To everyone else in this in this group that in verse 21, who are characterized as people who seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Those two concepts are put in contrast. You have somebody who is genuinely concerned for the welfare of Christians, in contrast to those who are interested in their own interests, not interested in the interests of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, what are the interests of Jesus Christ? His church. Do you remember when the Apostle Paul was persecuting, uh, sorry, Saul, before he was the Apostle Paul, was persecuting the church and he has this encounter with Jesus on that road and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Do you know what he says next? Me. Jesus identifies himself with his people, with his body, the church. So Paul uses Timothy as an example of what it looks like to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. I'm reading Philippians, from Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. He's putting Timothy forward as an example of someone who is not looking to his own interests, verse 4, but also to the interests of others. Somebody they know, a real person. They know Timothy. They knew his proven worth, how he served alongside Paul as a son with a father, as it's recorded here in our text. And instead of seeking his own interests, he was genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Christians in Philippi. By the way, that is the contest going on in our hearts all the time, right? Our interests or the interests of Jesus. Our interests or the interests of others in Christ. So let's ask ourselves, as a Christian church member of Highlands Baptist Church, let's use the text the way it says right here about how he describes Timothy. Is there anyone in this church membership that might describe you in a similar way? Oh, they are genuinely concerned for my welfare in Christ. They're genuinely concerned. Or do you primarily seek your own interests? Again, I said this was going to be heavy on application, okay? We need this. We do. I need this. My heart needs this. Maybe it's more helpful to ask the question this way. In what ways do you seek the interests of Jesus Christ? I said earlier that this was going to be having an application, and I admit these are tough questions to answer, but as we work through this, would you please just 
trust that God has good in store for us. Taking the truth that has been compiling up through here all the way up through chapter 2 and now pressing us to really examine are we embracing this truth or just living with it abstractly out there as something for other people. So consider your own life. How often do you put your interests ahead of the interests of Jesus Christ and his church in regards to something as simple as your attendance on Sunday for our Lord's Day worship? And you're like, well, we're here, so you all pass the test, right? (laughs) No, just think of your disposition, your attitude. You know it. I don't, but you do. How often do you put your interests ahead of the interests of Jesus Christ in regards to your involvement in active service to the church family? Do you attend, consume, and then leave, having kind of done your Christian duty, but not genuinely seeking the welfare of others? You see, that's not biblical Christianity. It may be American Christianity, to kind of come together, be part of a social, religious experience, and then leave, and not really having a sense of community, of engaging, of helping others follow Christ, of genuinely being concerned for their welfare in the Lord. Going home with a sense of, Lord, I'm going to pray for that brother, pray for that sister. And by the way, serving Christ's church does not require an official title or a public position. There is no shortage of opportunities for us all to live out the statements that are found in our membership covenant. And at our last members meeting, we read that aloud. And members of membership, I'd like to remind you again of what we have in there for us. And let that be an encouragement. Let that be kind of a roadmap, a strategy for how you can live out a life that is worthy of the gospel. But back to some uncomfortable questions of application. You ready? Do you view church, family, church, experience church life largely through the sense of self? Now, I'm picking on this because we live in the age of self. (laughs) What I mean by that is, do you evaluate whether a church is good or bad on a Sunday based on how you feel, how it served or didn't serve you, how you liked or didn't like the songs, how it did or didn't leave you encouraged? Or, or maybe I should say, are you interested or preoccupied with God's interests or yours? And friends, the reason I'm pressing into this is because we live in a world that is just constantly, um, what's the right word, inoculating us um, to to accept as normal self, self, self. Life is full and, and happy as long as it goes according to me, me, me. And it's very easy for us to walk into church with those same ideals. Friends, we've been delivered from that in Christ. So, do you attend or serve when it's convenient? When it fits into your schedule? When it isn't too difficult or too costly for you? When you don't have other plans that would get in the way and prevent you? Are you basically living a life that is filled up with the American dream and pursuits of career and experience and leisure and comfort and vacations and travel and fill in the blank? And then we try to figure out, okay, I'll serve God with the leftovers. That is commonly what is being considered as normal American Christianity. But it is not what is modeled here for us as normal Christianity. This is why I said this text hit me in the nose a few times. There's more American Christianity flowing in my own thinking and my own thoughts than I care to admit. How do we demonstrate our interest in the things of Jesus? It's by saying no to our interests. 
It's by dying to self. It's by having choices here for ourselves that aren't evil or sinful or bad, but a choice also of Christ and his church and his people and saying, I'm going to prioritize. I'm going to live a life worthy of the gospel. I'm not going to look on my own interests, but in the interests of others. I'm going to genuinely show concern for the welfare of my brothers and sisters. That will look like something. It's tough, right? We have rights. We have options. We have time. We have money. My money. My vacation. My time. We live with those expectations. But friends, Jesus is either King and Lord or he is not. So then, test ourselves, right? Again, I'm not throwing this out in accusation or condemnation. I'm simply trying to ask us to sift through and think, these are the gods of our age, our modern age. This is where we need to let the Scripture do its scalpel-like work of surgery. I'm not asking about good intentions, but genuinely asking about actual reality. Who in this church family are you genuinely concerned for their spiritual welfare? Is there anyone you are trying to help follow Jesus? And if so, what did that look like over the last two months? And I ask it that way because it's easy for us to say, yeah, I want to do that. I'd like to do that. I desire to do that. But what does it actually look like? And if we don't have any expression of obedience to Jesus in those ways where our lives are shaped and conformed by the gospel, so we're living a life worthy of the gospel, then it's just intentions and we need to admit that and repent before God and embrace the path that he has for us here. I was convicted about this. I'm going to use an illustration from my own life. And this illustration if, is, is going to be about uh, one of my children. We, we had two, uh, both of our girls were involved in sports. And so if you've got a kid in sports, I am not saying that if you've got a kid in sports, you don't love Jesus. That is not what I'm saying, okay? Please hear me, all right? But this was just kind of an eye-opening thing for me as I was sifting through this. We had one of our, I'll, I'll use volleyball because that's um, the most recent experience we had. Um, I was shocked. My, my kid joins volleyball. I'm like, okay, cool. We're going to go cheer him on and it'll be kind of neat. Friends, um, I was shocked at the level of commitment required. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, not only required of just my daughter, but of me as a dad, of us as parents, of us as a family. Now, some of you are well familiar with this. Okay. But I mean, really, there were after game dinners. We, we did things that I'd never done before, like eating cereal dinner in a parking lot of a volleyball club after a game. I'd never done that before. Didn't even know people did that. I did that as part of being on this team. It's not bad or wrong. It's just something I thought, oh, here we go. I was shocked at the amount of emails and updates that were going out, keeping everybody in the loop on what's happening and when the next thing is. I ate more dinners in other, peop- other people's homes. There were Catholic homes, which was a good thing for a Baptist pastor to be in a Catholic home talking to people that, that, that probably in that sense didn't know Jesus in his full saving work. That's a good thing, right? But friends, we were driving places I never would have driven. There were extra practices, after-season club and skill-building programs. Oh, I'm spending money on feeding my family fast food when I never do that. My, ask my kids, all right? Um, now we're doing, I'm spending money I didn't plan to spend. We're spending time in the car. I mean, driving an hour, one, uh, not one way, round trip to pick people up and drop them off. And we did this, and it was just expected. And I'm not complaining. It was just kind of eye-opening. But here's the rub, okay? And again, it, I'm not saying that if your kid's in sports that, that you don't love Jesus, but here's the rub. Why, why do we do all of that for our kids or sports, club or hobbies or whatever? 
and then become stingy or lazy in our hearts toward the costly commitment for Christ's church and God's people. That's the reality of American Christianity. That's, that's what this text wants us to push back against. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Now, I mean, here's a silly illustration. What if this church family offered a gospel ministry opportunity that required you to drive extra, it took you away from your home during dinner time, it required your family rhythms to be upset, it inconvenienced the rhythms of your family in at least twice a week, and you would do that for the next eight weeks? How many of you would say, are you kidding me? But yet, why are we ready to do that for our kids' sports or our career advancement or you fill in the blank? I'm just trying to challenge our preconceived biases and notions that we have come to accept as, oh, this is just American Christianity. Maybe American Christianity has things backwards and upside down. The honest truth is American Christianity is plagued by the diseases of familyism, sportsism, and careerism. And we could fill in more blanks. Leisureism, comfortism, vacationism, on and on it goes. And our kids, they don't need to see, and our fellow church members don't need to see us committed to their sports or their interests or their schedule or our careers or our leisure or our entertainments. And on and on you could go, they need to see our commitment to the glory of Jesus shining through our obedience to our King. We need to be demonstrating to one another and helping encourage one another that Jesus is worth it. And we can say no. We should be saying no. Occasionally, at times, in order to demonstrate that I am genuinely concerned for the welfare of my brother and sister. I am putting the interests of Jesus first and to be encouraged in that. American Christianity has crept into our thinking more than we care to admit. If we're thinking at this point, sheesh, why did I come on this day? Just getting clubbed and beat up, told I'm bad and I don't love God. And Well, friends, this... Again, this passage has hit me in the nose. The first step for Christian growth is admitting our need. And if we are digging in and making excuses, if we're rationalizing, if we're full, if our heads right now are full of, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Friends, do you realize what we're doing is we are, we are, we are hard-headed and hard-hearted and pray that God would deliver us from that. The, we, we must look into the mirror of God's word and admit our need and repent where necessary or we will never grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And we must. The advance of the gospel requires that. The salvation of other people require that. We will not obey our king if we are not obeying him here with us as a church family. If we're not willing to talk about Jesus with each other, if we're not genuinely concerned for our welfare as brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we ever expect to be concerned about the lost that are on the next street around our homes? And if we are not, then we have defaulted and we have failed and we've given up our mandate as a church. We should just close the doors and all go home. We exist to display God's glory by making disciples. That's a life worthy of the gospel. So Epaphroditus, the second section here, Epaphroditus, man, this guy, whew, he suffered. He almost died. I mean, he is, um, we don't know much about this guy. 
Uh, we can derive a little bit of him from his name. It was his, his name Epaphroditus. I know none of you are planning to name a kid or anything like that. And that's a good thing because his name is actually a reference to the Greek goddess Aphrodite, which was the Greek goddess of love and fertility. He was named after the Greek goddess of love and fertility, right? I mean, man, it must have been a rough middle school. And what's interesting is that Epaphroditus comes to faith in Christ. And by the way, just anecdotally, he doesn't change his name. You got a Christian guy serving and he's like, here, let me, let me introduce you to Epaphroditus. Can you imagine that? I mean, basically the, the guy who's named after Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of love and fertility. I mean, Saul changed his name. Why didn't this guy? I don't know. But anyways, I just think it's anecdotally interesting. Um, this guy was a member of the church in Philippi. He is sent to buy that church with the gift of money and the, the task of encouraging Paul, who's in prison. Epaphroditus makes that journey and delivers that financial gift. Paul is encouraged by it. Epaphroditus gets super sick, so sick in, in, in carrying out this mission. He almost dies. Paul's praying, and, and, God, and you see where it says that... Um, God had mercy, verse 27. God had mercy on him, right? He didn't die. And not only on him, Epaphroditus, he lived. Yay, Epaphroditus is happy. But Paul is like, I, God had mercy on me. Because if he had died, man, that would have been sorrow upon sorrow for me. Another little check mark on how essential Christian community was for Paul's flourishing as a Christian. So he is sending Epaphroditus back probably earlier than intended, and he encourages the church there to receive him, give him honor, and, and, and uh, be thankful for the work that he did, honor such people who have given their lives in such costly sacrifice. I mean, he almost died. And, uh, and by the way, he encourages the church to understand that what Epaphroditus did was what they couldn't do for him in person, because right? they were gone. They sent an emissary. We're going to move through this quickly, but I want you to notice how Paul describes Epaphroditus. My brother... See it? My fellow worker and fellow soldier. You see that there in 25? My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. My brother. That is a personal term of endearment. That word my. Not just a brother. My brother. It shows how Paul viewed other Christians. And of course, Paul would have that perspective. He's in prison. He can't just gather with the church whenever he'd like. Um, he, he couldn't have the experience of, of Christian fellowship whenever he'd like. And what we find here is how Paul fundamentally, foundationally viewed other Christians. And I'm going to quote, uh, give two quotes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, okay? Somebody who was in prison and did not have the privilege of Christian community like we enjoy today and yet often cast aside Bonhoeffer said it this way, Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. Does that seem strange to you? How do you view Christians in this church like that? my sister, my brother? Or do you view them as my disappointment, my frustration, my irritation, my inconvenience? Now that can happen to all of us at any time, right? I've been that to you. But friends, what 
Christianity gives us in Christ is that we are oriented and should understand one another that we have relationship in Jesus. Second quote by Bonhoeffer, but without Christ, we would also not know our brother or sister, nor could we come to them. The way is blocked by our own ego. (laughs) Christ opened up the way to God and to our brother. Now Christians can live with one another in peace. They can love and serve one another. They can become one, but they can continue to do so only by the way of Jesus Christ. That's a gospel-transformed perspective and view of each other as Christians. So, again, challenging our American notions, right? Here we go. What gives you the greatest sense of connection with other Christians? And I really want you to be honest with this. Like, functionally, what gives you the greatest sense of connection? Income bracket? Zip code? Where you put your kids in school? Your family size? Your family composition? Your age, gender, or life stage? I mean, are there there people in this church family that you're like, I have nothing in common with them? Career? How about this? Political positions? For Paul, his foundational sense of connection with other Christians was Christ, my brother. And so it should be for us. And sadly, this is becoming a lost reality more and more in American Christianity. My fellow worker, would anyone in this church describe you like that? A fellow worker. A fellow worker in the gospel. There's few things that help build unity and cohesion and healthy relationships in a church family than simply serving together, side by side for the advance of the gospel. How do you, how will you serve this church family? Who are you a fellow worker with? And by the way, here's, here's just one opportunity that I think uh, I just want to keep pressing, and I'm going to be obnoxious about this, and I'm not apologizing for it. How about attending prayer group on Wednesday evening at 7 o'clock once a month to be a fellow worker with other brothers and sisters in interceding for this church family and interceding for the salvation of the lost and interceding for God's gracious and kind work of spiritual blessing, interceding for our own joy in the Lord. On and on it goes. How about that? You're like, I don't know how to serve. On Sunday, I can't sing, I can't play, I can't do that. You can pray, friend. You can pray. Say, well, my schedule, you don't understand. Listen, I get it. I get it. We all are there. And if Wednesdays doesn't work, genuinely, it's impossible. I mean, how many other things might you have said yes to on a Wednesday that you said no to about gathering with the church? Again, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just trying to press this past our natural reactions and, and rationalizations. If you can't, okay, then how can you be a fellow worker with other Christians in our mandate before Christ, of making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them all things. How about when he says, fellow soldier? Boy, we have lost this, haven't we? Fellow soldier, we kind of begin to think that, you know, Jesus is coming back and he's supposed to make our lives really good until he comes back. But really, the Bible tells us that we are soldiers. We are, the church is a little outpost of God's kingdom behind enemy lines. And we're in like foxhole, gospel foxholes. And we've got to look out for one another. There's an adversary. There are, there are adversaries. There is evil in the world. And it is trying to devour us and destroy us and erase the cause of Christ and destroy it. 
Friends, we're soldiers who should be striving side by side to obey the commission of our king. And Epaphroditus exampled that. He gave his life. He, he almost gave his life, sorry. I mean, he, he pushed that far. Now, the application is not, if you haven't nearly died for Jesus, you don't love him. Okay? That, is, that is not what you should pull from this text. All right? But think of this. It sounds radical, right? I mean, maybe Epaphroditus should have, like, put pause on his trip and not traveled or, you know, taken care of himself a little bit so he could do more for God, right? And that's kind of how our American minds think. I don't know all the details going into the circumstances around his illness and when it happened and whatnot. I do want to point out, though, that it sounds so radical that, really, I mean, Epaphroditus nearly dies for the sake of Jesus, and then we've got American Christianity that kind of serves him conveniently, comfortably, leisurely, just generally, okay? Just, I'm talking about generalities. There's probably room between these two for us to obey Jesus, right? Did you get my point? I think that's one of the application takeaways here. Now, what are we going to do with all this? Well, we all need to give careful examination to our hearts before the Lord. Again, I told you this is going to be ruthless in application, heavy, pushing, challenging, hopefully by God's Spirit convicting where it's needed. You say, well, man, I feel like you just gave us Timothy and Epaphroditus, and you've kind of expected us to kind of just be, just do better. You know, moralism, religiousism, like Phariseeism. So I want to make sure we don't walk out with that, and then I'll, I'll, I'm done. I know I've gone a little long. I haven't preached for four weeks. You know, i got to you know, catch up. Friends, the first step is repent. Now, there's a key second step, but before we get there, we have to be willing to admit what are the other kings, gods, that have been elevated in my life that are preventing me from living a life worthy of the gospel, that are, that are emptying me from really having a life that has proof and evidence of genuinely being concerned for other Christians in this church family, striving side by side, using all the language that we've had in Philippians 2. Repent. It is a mercy from God, his conviction. That's a mercy from God. Step two, look to Christ. Now, you say, well, you just told us to look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. I have, because they are real-life examples for that church, and it, it offered opportunities for us to challenge some of the ways that the diseases of American Christianity are creeping into us. But friends, that's not enough. Timothy and Epaphroditus aren't enough. And the reason I know that is because Paul didn't start with them. And what we need then, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, go ahead and look there. He says, "...work out your own salvation with fear and trembling." Why is there fear and trembling in our working out our salvation? Because God is working in you. So friends, don't mess with God's work. It's God who's work. Are you convicted? Have fear and trembling. It's God who's at work. That's, a, that's amazing. It's amazing. And friends, here's the kind of work he does. He is working in you for the willing, right, to both both to will and to work, to obey for his good pleasure. If you didn't hear that sermon a couple weeks ago on that passage, find it online. It's fantastic. We need it. But friends, I want you to look back to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. That should be our encouragement. We have the mind of Christ. So here's how we tie it together. Because Jesus, so, so we need to be people who think and reflect and meditate and embrace and enjoy the gospel 
the great saving acts of God for us. Here's how. Because when we understand and embrace that Jesus has given his life for our interests, Jesus gave himself for our interests to deliver us from the curse of sin. He died. He left the glories of heaven. He was born as a baby in Nazarene in a manger. He was beaten and mocked and ridiculed and abandoned and denied and betrayed, falsely accused. He lived a life like that. He did it for our interests because of that. We then in Christ are given the freedom to give our lives for the interests of others in the advance of the gospel. You see, we no longer are like, well, God, don't take that away from me. Jesus gave it all for you. And it's like, yeah, I don't need to hang on to that anymore. Yeah, you can have that. I mean, it just melts when the gospel really grabs our affections. It just, it just melts our American Christianity, you know, rationalizations. Or it should. And so the gospel is what must motivate obedience to this. The gospel is what will, should bring about true repentance in our lives. Not moralism, not do-betterism, not Phariseeism, not shame. Shame isn't the motivation for true lasting change. Guilt isn't the motivation for true lasting change. Jesus is. Embracing and understanding and being so overwhelmed with his redemption. We've been delivered from the penalty of condemnation of sin. We've been given new life in Christ to enjoy God forever. So then we don't do good works to get God. We accept his work for us. That's the gospel. That's who we are. We get now to live a life that's worthy of that. That's an expression of that. How? Very practically, putting others' interests more than ourselves. Genuinely being concerned for the welfare of others. Not doing things in selfish ambition or conceit. And I don't know, you can fill it in with Philippians, what we've learned so far. So church family, I pray that Highlands would more and more be filled with many, many examples of this. And and God has given us examples of this in our church family. This is not like it's empty. If that's what the sense you get, please don't think that. There, God is doing it, and he is. And here's why I'm confident of that, because of verses 12 and 13. God is at work. He is at work here right now. He is producing these kind of examples in us now. And he's producing even more as a result of studying God's word together. So would you join me in prayer for that? in praise of that as we see God do it, with confidence that he will produce more and more of it as we continue to obey our King.